0: You're listening to Bloom and Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. I'm David Bloom, your host of Bloom and Tech. In this episode, I sat down with Mike Hayes and Morley Winograd to talk about the new book they've authored with Doug Ross. The book is called Healing American Democracy, Going Local. It's a short book about a big subject moving beyond the partisan gridlock that's left Washington, D.C. politics nearly immobilized. Uh, Mike and Morley suggest getting away from top-down, centralized approaches like what Washington has done since the New Deal era, and instead relying on millennials and their successor generation, whom they call the plurals, and technology, including big data and tools to help share and replicate local successes in other jurisdictions. All this would be backed by constitutional protections to make sure that the rights of minorities and others are protected. It's a really interesting mix. Both Mike and Morley have strong political and technological backgrounds. Mike was a pollster and executive with Maggot Associates, the big consulting firm on tech, marketing, and media. Morley headed the Michigan Democratic Party at one point and was special assistant to Vice President Al Gore when he was in office. More recently, Morley headed an institute on communications technology at the USC Marshall School of Business. Their co-writer, Doug Ross, is a former Michigan state senator and state official who now runs a charter school. I had a great conversation with Mike and Morley about how think globally and act locally can actually be a path forward for a committed group of young people trying to make their communities better, harnessing technology while protecting our basic constitutional rights. Give it a listen. Hey, everybody, I'm David Bloom. I am your host in Bloom and Tech. I am delighted today to be talking with Mike Hayes and Morley Winograd, two old friends who've written a third book now about issues around generational change, technology use, and politics, areas that they have deep knowledge about. They've added a third author, Doug Ross, who is not joining us today, but they all have background in communications and technology and are fascinating. The book is called Healing American Democracy, Going Local. They are understandably distressed by the partisanship and division in our country and have suggested, based on their long background and interest, I think a pretty fascinating approach to deal with it. But also, uh, I think they, given their background in previous books about Millennials and their use of technology and the transformative impacts, uh, I think bring some really interesting perspectives in that area as well. So welcome Mike and Morley.
1: Uh, David, this is Morley and I'm identifying myself for your listeners and I'm delighted to chat with you again because actually when it comes to the technology side of things, you know more than both of us, but we can we can certainly keep up with you in terms of its impact on our country and its politics and our society.
2: And this is Mike. Thank you, David, for having us on. I uh, really appreciate that you're willing to come back to us and find something, hopefully, that we have to say that's interesting for your audience. So you guys wrote...
0: I guess it's been 10 years now, a really interesting, it's been a decade, it's hard to believe. Back then, um, you actually in 2007, you wrote a book about millennials and how they were using communications technologies. You all were building your book on some of the research and, and thinking by two guys named Strauss and Howe, who have been fundamental in the understanding of generational shifts and how they shape culture and much else. And you all put another overlay on that that I thought was fascinating and quite trenchant about the communication shifts that those generations embrace and how they change our culture. You guys were bright enough to figure out that those two sets of trends were going to come together in an interesting way in the 2008 election though you didn't pick a horse but you said this uh, young senator from illinois had a shot to do something and it turned out you were pretty sharp about that barack obama went on to win i think what's interesting in your new book is how that has that use of the new cutting edge technologies has continued to change our politics and in fact now, whether you love him or hate him, Donald Trump used it at a at a next level. Talk about that a little bit, if you would.
1: I'd be, I'd be happy to. We said in in those books that you were kind enough to refer to, particularly Millennial Makeover, but also very much in Millennial Momentum, that the shift in communication technology that we experienced thanks to the uh, birth of the internet. We won't get into how it got created and all those kinds of interesting conversations. But the fact that it was there as a platform enabled a generation, millennials, now America's largest generation, uh, to uh, communicate in a way that was fundamentally different than the communication technologies that uh, us older folks had grown up with, that boomers had grown up with, that even Gen X had grown up with, It's all of which is the older technology being a broadcast media platform, whether it's radio or television or cable television, it's all, you know, somebody at the center decides what everybody else should hear and when they should hear it. And therefore, there's this kind of centralized power that permeates society's thinking about who are experts and and who do we have to listen to. And when you shift that to a social media platform, instead, you distribute the power to everybody everywhere, who all of whom can be producers and consumers at the same time. That, that had several implications, which you talked about in our books, but which we, as you say, further talk about in this book, and we can come to this book momentarily. But it means that expertise is devalued because everybody can be their own expert, and the expertise lies within the group and what the group believes. By the way, that is what the group believes leads you to things like fake news and trying to influence what the group believes by pretending to be a part of the group, all of which phenomenon we saw in the 2016 election. And it also devolves power from a top-down structure to a bottom-up one. And one of the things we talk about in Healing American Democracy is that this is all these forces of change, the generational change, the communication change, our economic change – is leading to a a complete transformation of American society from a top-down structure to a bottom-up one. And now we need a solution that preserves democracy in the middle of that change.
0: Mike, your background, you were a pollster uh, with MAGID and, and Associates, which is still a very big firm in the technology space doing lots of interesting consulting. What is the nature—we think about the millennials, we talk about the millennials a lot, but they—millennials a lot, but they, as you guys talk in the book, are now one-third, are about to become one-third of the population of the country and are the largest generation in history. What are the components of them and of the generation behind them that can shape the solutions you guys are
2: talking about? One thing you— can say about the millennials is they are a type of generation you're right that they will in the 2020 election have at least have the potential to be a over a third of the electorate about a third 36 percent of the adult population and quite conceivably about that portion of the electorate those who actually vote in 2020 and they do seem to be pretty activated at this particular point They are a very group-oriented generation. That is, they they tend to focus on what the group believes, trying to reach some sort of consensus on on group behavior, group attitude. They also are a diverse generation ethnically. And finally, at least at this point, they are very unified politically. They identify as Democrats by about a two-to-one margin. And so if that continues, and given the way political scientists have have studied the voting patterns and party identifications of people, once those party identifications are formed early in life, um, when people are in their teens and their 20s, they pretty much keep those identifications for the rest of their lives. So once that happens and they vote in a unified way, they will be a, a, a major force that is going to have a, a real possibility of shaping the electorate, shaping out, electoral outcomes, and presumably down the road, public policy in the, in the future. So it is a very crucial generation.
1: I, I think before we talk about the generation that follows, one of the key things we talk about in the book about millennials is their tendency when it comes to public policy to uh, think globally but act locally. And we first started talking about that in our second book, and now we reinforce it here with some additional survey data that I'm sure Mike can share, in which we, to capture that sort of corporate phrase, but put it in a political and and social context, they are very motivated by causes. Mike talked about how motivated they seem to be for the upcoming election. But when they think about how to do something about it, such as the environment, they often and almost always first think about acting locally and trying to solve the problem at a level where they can have an immediate or more direct impact. Uh, Coupled with this movement of technology from top down to bottom up, forms two of the three pillars of the reason why we think constitutional localism, a focus on local communities having more authority to make more decisions so long as They don't violate the constitutional protections we have in this country. Those two tendencies, the generational tendency and the technology tendency, are reasons why we think constitutional localism will be the way we begin to organize America uh, going forward.
0: Mike, you were about to talk about the generation that follows the millennials. They've been called a lot of things, Gen Z and so on and so forth. But you all have a different Phrase for them that perhaps is certainly much more engaging and um, makes a little bit more sense. Talk about that post-millennial we generation. We refer to
2: that generation as the pluralist generation and the individuals within that generation as plurals. Uh, the reason we use that term, and actually I will give credit to a good friend of ours, uh, uh, a, a man named Jack McKenzie, who was formerly at MAGID. The term plurals because this is a generation that is the first generation in which there is no single ethnic or racial majority. There is, or There are only the white population within that group will be the largest single group, but they will only make up a plurality of the population. And in total, the various non-white groups, uh, African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, will actually be a majority of the population. This generation is uh, a a bit different than millennials. It tends to be a much more compromise-oriented type of generation. It is very much like actually the silent generation of the 1950s and 60s that Morley and I are members of, and uh, it's much more inclined, as I said, toward compromising, toward also but still quite willing to work on causes at at the, at the local and sometimes at the state level. Many of the people who were in, in the march on Washington, the March for Our Lives, were in fact members of this new pluralist generation.
0: Now, it's important to note that I think the oldest of the plurals are just now getting old enough to vote, right? They're just now hitting 18, 19 years old.
1: Yeah, t- some of them will be that in 2018. Okay. Right.
0: So they can start to be part of the voting. But,
1: but their voting tendencies, to the degree that we can tell, because they haven't actually voted yet, but there, to the degree there is survey data and it's relatively limited, uh, seem to be uh, in uh, an acceleration of millennial tendencies. N- n- not for the whole generation in terms of every aspect, but in terms of how they think about inclusion and and organizing society and so forth and so on they are not going to be a sharp turn like millennials were from the Gen X world. They're going to be a continuation. Interesting. But you all are talking
0: about, more generally, a sharp turn. You talk about a. we are still at the very back end of a third era of civic ethos in the United States. The first was the one that led to the creation of the country. The second is what was built after the Civil War and the end of slavery. The third came about in the um, traumas of the Great Depression and World War II, and we are now on the back end of that 70- or 80-year run, and it's time for something new, you argue, in this book. So talk about constitutional localism. You've gotten into it a tiny bit with the, the two pillars. The third one, I believe, is the constitutional framework that still protects minorities' rights and basic civil rights, but uh, allows for, what, the laboratory of democracy to to go fully local and and fully empowered. Thank
1: you for that setup, and I totally agree. The civic ethos, as as we refer to it and as you referenced it in terms of the New Deal, is a way of thinking about where power should lie, what the scope and nature of government should be, how decisions should be made, and what the different layers of government uh, should be responsible for. And it is completely broken down in the book we point out with lots of data as to why it's broken down, which has little to do with the actual players and actors that you see on television all the time, and has a great deal to do with the way the country has fractured and divided itself and become a very variegated or clumpy country with widely different opinions about almost anything, where to live, what to eat, who to to associate with that don't have a lot of overlap, don't have a lot of commonality as existed in the country through the World War II and post-World War II era. And that's why Congress doesn't work anymore. I mean, it's kind of like in our entertainment technology world, David, it's kind of like if you had a video game and the controller no longer caused anything to happen on the screen. You would not play that game for very long, either out of frustration or anger or maybe boredom, you'd quit playing the game and that's what's happened we don't have a controller that works anymore for the game of democracy in America and so what we're saying is if you accept the reality of this country in its various divisions tribes some people say as as something that is here whether it's good or bad it's here then you have to think about well how are we going to have a democracy in that situation if we're not going to be able to come to consensus let alone get anything done, at the national level, how are people going to have any appreciation for this game of democracy? When, or, where, when and, and where are they going to play it? And so our and, book argues that the place where we, the data suggests you might have the best chance of having democracy work, solve problems, be effective, is at the local level, the city level or community level. And therefore we have to reorient our, our, our thoughts about where power should be made, where decisions should reside. We certainly have already seen uh, innovation shifting to the urban areas. We've seen social innovation coming, the birth of free college programs beginning in a small town in Michigan and now affecting hundreds of cities and a dozen or so states in the country. These kinds of bottom-up activities are not a deviation from the norm. They're the signal of what's to come. And um, and Mike can talk a little bit about why constitutional is in that term that we use as opposed to just localism, and and perhaps some other uh, aspects of the demographic change.
2: Right. Well, I, I I just want to point out because Morley is correct in all that he said, but I just want to point out that this does have that what has happened to the country since the 1930s is that it is just briefly put has gone from being a 90 percent white. Christian country, where 90% of the uh, the immigrants uh, were of European descent, to one which is far more diverse, where uh, uh, only about 60% of the population is white and Christian, where the large majority of immigrants are actually of non-European descent, either from Latin America or Asia at this point. And if evenly around the country, it really Probably wouldn't have the impact that it does, but it has a very real geographic component to it, uh, where people of particular groups live in particular areas, and not only that, but that is reflected in in how Congress, and particularly the House of representatives, is is apportioned, so that the Republican Party has one set of demographic characteristics in Congress, and the and the Democratic Party has another. So we do have this situation where. Congress is unable to act. It has is, it is really hurt attitudes toward democracy as as a result of that, and it d- really demands a new arrangement, and that's why Washington is unable to act, but we are seeing at the local level people of various uh, communities uh, actually developing useful policies. Morley mentioned the Promise programs, uh, the uh, f- uh, free college programs that develop in Kalamazoo, michigan and have gone elsewhere so we really feel that that the local activities the local localization of government and policy is is most likely to produce positive outcomes both policy and giving people positive feelings about democracy Uh, morley did mention the idea of the constitutional aspect of this what we are talking about, however, is not that we that the local areas can secede from the Constitution. We aren't talking about somehow uh, local areas deciding they are going to resegregate themselves, something of that sort. So this is all going to be governed by the way the uh, Constitution has been has, has has been interpreted and evolved over the years, so that the civil rights and civil liberties that the country has developed over the past Several centuries are going to be adhered to, and have to be adhered to at the local level, while this while policies are being made at the local level.
0: Now we see a lot of a lot of this playing out already. You mentioned the education stuff. Uh, the book also talks about some efforts to use big data in government. Uh, I mean, LA and LA County. I mean, uh, I've watched with great interest my old friend Eric Garcetti trying to drive more data-based uh, outcomes and using technology to connect people uh, to their government for reporting potholes, for instance. The the, the uh, county here, which I once covered as a reporter, is using a lot of data-driven stuff to clean up their welfare system processes and mental health treatment and all that. The former police chief, uh, Bill Bratton, took his uh, tools that he first put in place in Boston and New York and brought them out here and helped uh, also dramatically reduce murder rates and crime rates here as he had done in other places. So those seem like very local kinds of smart uses of technology to help assist in solving local problems. But technology I, can I is I key in, here.
1: Can I interject there for a moment? Yeah, there yeah sure. Uh, uh, you, the citations you gave are exactly right. Of course, when Bratton started, he didn't have the advantage of big data because he was back in the 90s. But what we talk about in the book is that if you take his approach to solving problems at the local level and getting everybody involved in finding those solutions and basing it around data and then layer in the big data technology that we have, you can make dramatic changes in how people think about what can be done. And the challenge we have now is that even though we can cite and you can talk about those examples of how that really worked on critical issues to people to make their local community work better, it's hard to find places where those communities are sharing the learning from those experiences. And uh, and so one of the things we propose in the book is let's take advantage of the social media capacity that we now have as well as the millennial generation's desire to share everything they learn, and let's build some new communication and social systems in the country that are focused around making sure one locality knows how another locality solved the problem. There's an easy interchange. It's frictionless. There's a whole lot of things that can be done if we start to build those kinds of networks that we call share networks for sharing and replicating Uh, those kinds of experiences.
2: These local experiences, and and, and specifically mentioning work that Bill Bratton did uh, in uh, ComStat uh, that was used in, in Boston, then New York, and then Los Angeles, but this was a program that in New York was first instituted under the administration of a Conservative Republican Rudy Giuliani, and still continues under the most liberal mayor in in New York's history, Bill de Blasio. So it, it, these are things because they are being done at the local level that could actually be appealing across uh, party lines, across partisan lines. Something you're not certainly not finding in Washington. And the ability, uh, once these are shared, I think they can be of use not only in Democratic cities, not only in Republican cities or rural areas, but really just about in any place because they are dealing with issues that people are facing on a day-to-day basis in their their local communities.
1: Mike's point is very, very important, David. As we looked and did research for the book around, well, where is innovation happening? It's central to our economic future. Where are new policy ideas, social innovation happening? and discovered that it was happening already, but at the local level, and not very well reported on, uh, despite your efforts when you were a reporter in L.A. The the real story, the real surprising part of that story, is that one of the reasons it wasn't being reported on is it was happening without partisan rancor or controversy. Uh, you know, when you get people to just try and fix their schools or fix the safety of their streets or even you know, resolve how they want to educate people or bring new people into the community and do something economically that helps everybody get a job. The partisan bitterness that we see on cable news every day on this old-fashioned broadcast media disappears and so and so that that is why we think that's where the future of America's faith and democracy will uh, be rebuilt is because people will have those experiences they won't be put off by hyper partisanship and they'll come to solutions that work
0: i think it all is uh, quite compelling and interesting stuff i mean uh, you point out for instance in the immigration issue which is probably one of the most divisive uh, issues out there something that probably was core to trump's success and certainly with the uh, uh, unhappy people in the upper midwest who were concerned about their own jobs but in fact uh, I know, for instance, that we have an issue of uh, 17 or 18 million uh, boomers retiring over the next couple of decades and not being replaced, and we won't have enough population to fill those jobs and the economic growth that we'll need to help finance their retirement plans without immigration. But, but that's such a politically charged issue. You suggest The federal government still has a vast, important uh, role at the national level to vet who gets in, but that you could create a program of community sponsorships for areas, whether it's a successor to the H-1B visa that uh, Silicon Valley depends on so much to get uh, Indian and Chinese engineers in the door, or uh, that rural Georgia depends on uh, immigration legal or illegal to help uh, make its... Farms work that those Central areas in California, say, Central Valley in California. I was just trying to cover the coasts. <laughs> but uh, but in, 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 you know, wildly different areas, Silicon Valley and rural Georgia, about as different as I can imagine. But but both of them have need for immigrant labor to do the things that that make their economies go. Conceivably, you point out, they uh, each could be allowed to sponsor a, a number of immigrants into their areas that fit their needs to allow their local economies to thrive within, again, that constitutional framework uh, set by the, the national government. I'm fascinated in the notion of that because uh, that also has an opportunity to pull away, again, some of the rancor. When it's just anybody can come in and go anywhere, obviously there are places that just don't want anybody there. And there are places right. that desperately want somebody there. And uh, how you balance that out is very interesting. That's a really good, I think, illustration. But I guess the bigger question, as, as compelling as your argument and your suggestions are, is how do we get there? Or is it going to happen whether we want to or not just by the reality of stasis at the, at the federal level and vast dynamic energy and creation at the local
1: level that could be helped by your share approach? So we wrote the book to try and spark a conversation to answer the question you just raised. What is it that we need to do to make all this happen? We call upon millennials to up their civic engagement levels beyond what they already are, and they're at very high levels, to try and do some of this work at the local level. We call upon uh, mayors and governors to lead the creation of share networks. We suggest all those possibilities, but we don't try and define in the book exactly how to go about it, because that's not the way a bottom-up ecosystem works. So let me give you one example of something we didn't even know about when we wrote the book that is happening as we speak on this day in Kansas City. The Kansas City Stars publisher, which I think is McClatchy Newspapers, have convened a meeting of civic leaders, an all-day event, to study and understand the assets the economic assets that the city of Kansas City has its future needs its human capital and come up with a Kansas City specific plan for economic growth and innovation and they're building off a model that has worked in Fremont California and and uh, other places up in the East Bay it's worked in places like Kalamazoo that we've already talked about and is beginning to show promise in Detroit. It's a very locally focused effort. But the one in Kansas City is a bit unique because it's being led by the media, and it's being led by local media and local newspapers who know that if they can't fix the economic future of their market and they're limited by the nature of newspaper technology to that market, they won't have a business in the future. So they have an enormous incentive to go about trying to do this. And they're doing it exactly right, totally bottom up, create an ecosystem of growth. Don't try and dictate it. Create the conditions for things to improve. Don't try and dictate what the improvement must be. And so it is happening. And it's happening because of our book, because of some of the reception we've gotten. It's happening spontaneously because it's the way that people can actually feel like they're making a difference.
0: Well, it seems like that's probably a great place to end this. Thank you, Mike and Morley. The book is Healing American Democracy, Going Local, uh, by Mike Hayes, H-A-I-S, Doug Ross, and Morley Winograd. Uh, Where can they get the book? Amazon. And Amazon. It's a quick read. That is
1: the book market, thanks to the
2: technologies
1: we write about. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: exactly. And it's, it's available
2: either on, on elect, an electronic form or uh, on in paperback form.
0: They can locally choose their reading platform. So exactly, uh, exactly, that's great. Exactly. All right, all right. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate. Thank it. Thank you so much,
2: much, David. It's been
1: a treat as always.
2: Thank you, David. Yeah, appreciate you uh, appreciate your time.
0: Great, guys.